Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Day, good afternoon, good evening, uh, you two. We're back, and since we last spoke, the church has started this season that they call Ash Valentine's Day uh, Tide. Um, what uh, what's going on? I, I, I know Sarah, you've been traveling. RJ, I suspect that there's just more going on at your church than you can possibly keep up with. But um, that is true. Give us the update. What do you, what do you what do you have to say? Yeah, it's been a great couple weeks. I mean, I got to speak at RJ's church, which was wonderful, and then turned around and went back to Florida. I don't know what that says about me. Um, and I got to do Ash Wednesday at All Saints. Um, at in Winter Park. Winter Park, which was wonderful. And then I drove over to Jupiter, uh, Florida, which is close to where you are, right? Close to Palm Super Beach. Super close, RJ. like 20 minutes yeah. away. But you didn't come it, visit, thanks I for nothing. I didn't. I wanted to, though. Um, I really did. Um, just to hang out with your wife, not you. Um, I, I 100%, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but, but that was amazing. I was at Sanctuary Church where our buddy Tully and Chavijan and Stacey Chavijan, his wife, are, and they did um, a conference. So it was a very interesting week because I got to preach Ash Wednesday, uh, all three services, which I loved and requested, and then drive over and be, you know, with a big group of sort of, I don't really know what we call sanctuary, sort of ex-evangelicals, evangelicals, very, very different, right? Like praise music and mm, different crews. Tolian says that they, you know, they have a lot of 12-step groups that meet at that church, but the biggest 12-step group is the gathering they have on Sunday morning, uh, <laughs> yeah, which I loved. Um, nice. But yeah, I mean, that was, it, for me, I've kind of been feeling like, what what does my vocation look like since we moved here in a way that has caused me, I wouldn't say a lot of anxiety, um, but some, like, what, you know, what is this going to look like? And it felt really it has felt really wonderful to be with, um, be with people and in their churches in this capacity. And like, this could be a part of what my vocation is now. So yeah, it's been great. Loved it. That's so cool, Sarah. I can't yeah. wait to hear the, the recording. I, I talked to someone who heard the, the thing you did at Sanctuary live and just was gushing and gushing. I, I looked, the second I looked for it, it was archived. So, but I've, I've been told it's going to go up soon and maybe we'll link to it in the show notes if we, if we, if it comes um well rj i know it's just been dullsville over there that's right just playing a lot of solitaire you yeah. know catching up on my soaps um <laughs> no uh things are uh crazy um good you know we're 
um, in season, as they say here in West Palm Beach, which is kind of uh, from January through Easter, May, when everyone who's a snowbird or here part time is here and there's just endless um, events and dinners. And I was I was talking with a, a member of my vestry recently who just said, RJ, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do something every night. <laughs> so so I'm not doing something every night. Uh, but sometimes it feels that way. But it's but it's also wonderful because we have so many people at church and so many things going on. And then this weekend, uh, although if you're listening to this podcast, it sort of happened last weekend, is our literally named uh, Sanctuary Centennial Celebration because uh, we're celebrating 100 years of uh, worship and service in our current church building. Um, which was opened on February 24th, 1924. And so we're having a big party on Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, the bishop is going to be here. And at 11, we're going to do a service as they would have done it in 1924. So using like the 1892 prayer book and the King James Bible and period correct music and um, we still will let chill, uh, uh, let women serve. <laughs> we're not we're not going to go. <laughs> that we're would not be go that, that far. That's I would just right, want right. to be in the alternative universe. How that goes over with people? Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah, um, that's amazing. But it should be interesting, you know, to kind of yeah. take a take a look back and see see what that's like. So, yeah, we're doing good. I mean, life is uh, life is crazy. I'm a little mm. tired. Dave, yeah. how are you? Dave's feeling pretty good. <laughs> Dave's pretty good. <laughs> That's all right. Wow. Is no, okay? We moved the third yeah. person stage of Dave's illustrious career. Who are we talking to right now? If you're not Dave. I literally yeah. had someone who's been reading your books, Dave, and she was like, she was like, Dave, he's actually, he's actually like a pretty good author. Like I sort of, I didn't realize you know, he's actually like pretty, I was like, yeah, he's pretty good at his job. <laughs> Dave kind of knows good. what he's doing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. sweet to, to hear, uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If is it the backhanded? I don't know. No, no. Um, she was genuine. She was loving your books. She's like, I've read all of his books now. Aww. They're really good. Yeah. Oh, well, fantastic. Thank you yeah. for reading. Yeah. Um, well, it's it is funny, you know, because Lent, now that the whole world has gotten into the celebration of Lent, it kind of is low anthropology season, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I get my phone starts ringing uh, in a different way once people decide they want to talk about limitation and death and um, sin. So that's been, uh, I guess that's fun. I guess it's fun You're to be the person talking to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> um, no, my big thing is I've, I've, I'm actually working on my next book and I've finally got, it's moving. The, the title, we have a title. I love the title. The title is The Big Relief. Yeah. Why Grace is Christianity's Most Urgent Gift to a Worn so Out good. World. So good. Um, and it's, so it's a book, it's going to be about sort of a manifesto almost about grace and the various different ways in which it represents relief to the many, many pressures under which we live. And people who listen to the will be will definitely notice lots of different themes that we've talked about over the years. It, it won't be out till next year at this time. So, um, But we're really gearing up here at Mockingbird, we're gearing up for the release of the mystery issue of the magazine, which is our longest issue yet. It's so so just immaculate i don't know what to say other than if people are subscribed or they're monthly givers they should be very excited because it'll be probably to you the middle of next week and if they're not the you know take the plunge this thing is gorgeous and megan ritchie and cj green who edit the thing just it's it's such a gratuitous publication you know, it's just so so much better than it would have ever have to be, I think, um, or should be. So I just 
am thrilled about that. And, you know, we're just thinking about New York City, where I'll get to be with the two of you. So, again, yeah. uh, Mockingbird, New York, April 25th to 27th. We're, we're filling up. So, And we're uh, going to do a live show. We're doing a live show. Those are always so, awkward, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> bring your... Uh, your, 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 what is it? Your profanity. My bathrobe. Your, <laughs> Sarah, will Sarah be wearing a bathrobe? Will in Sarah person? be wearing a bathrobe? Yeah. You'll find it here first. Oh, the other thing that happened is I, this happened uh, two weeks ago, but uh, the theologian Rod Rosenblatt died, and he was yeah. very yeah. important in, to me and in the formation of Mockingbird. And it was, it was really, it's been really powerful to see the various tributes to him and. Uh, he has a video called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, which was very formative for us. And I, I think it really holds up. Um, Rod was a real gracious presence, sort of like a really a good father to a lot of people. Mm. And uh, that's, you know, a lot of people have been broken by the church. And to talk to those who don't think there's a way forward or that they're, they're sort of, he, he addresses the sad and mad alumni of the Christian faith. And there's a lot of them. And I think that... Uh, my experience listening to that was like, oh, there is another way than just becoming, you know, just nothing but sort of high church or becoming nothing but no church, you know, like yeah. that there is something else out there. Yeah. Uh, and for in his, it was always sort of Lutheran theology, but he was a person that was actually able to talk to non-Lutherans about it, which was a bit of a scandalous thing in his own uh, setting. But um Anyway, grateful for that man, and it felt like acknowledging it on here. But let's let's get to the topics at hand. So first up this time around is the best small talk topic in the Atlantic Monthly by Gilad Edelman. Uh, this is what um, Gilad writes: We are taught that discussing the weather is the epitome of meaningless drivel and the mark of a poor conversationalist, the vocal equivalent of a sign declaring, "I am an uninteresting person." In the classic example, two people, perhaps sharing an elevator, find themselves at a loss for what to talk about but feel compelled to fill the air. One of them says, it's supposed to rain tonight. Is that a boring scenario? Perhaps, but let's think about what's really happening. The problem here is not that the weather is boring. The problem is that the people have nothing else to talk about. And once the topic of the evening's precipitation is exhausted, the conversation will sputter out awkwardly. Perversely, the weather becomes the symbol of a limited conversational repertoire when it was in fact the most interesting subject available. And then Edelman uh, references there's an Oscar Wilde quote that's sort of actually misquoted about how talk of the weather is kind of the last refuge of the uninteresting person or something like that. He goes on, let's consider the possibility that people turn toward weather talk because it is interesting. The weather is on our minds because it matters. It determines how we dress, the plans we make, what we'll cook for dinner, whether we catch that flight. It affects our emotions more powerfully than most drugs. Bonding over a sunny day spreads joy. Commiserating over gloom builds solidarity. Weather talk can be boring, of course, as any subject can be in the wrong hands, but compared with what? In Berkeley, California, where I recently lived for two years, where RJ went to school, the weather is pretty nice pretty much every day, which mostly eliminates it as a topic of conversation. Instead, people in the Bay Area will talk your ear off about the adventurous things they like to do in the nice weather. Bike rides, camping trips, ayahuasca, which is actually quite boring. Maybe it's not a coincidence that Californians are ever so slightly duller on average than East Coasters. <laughs> what we lose in climate, we gain in personality. Burn. 
When evaluating conversational topics, you have to consider the alternatives. If you're not going to talk about the weather, what are you going to talk about? Your kids? Your dog? Are you sure that's the gripping material you think it is? Going on about yourself is the surest way to be boring. The beauty of the weather is that it is inherently collective. If I'm hot and sweaty, you probably are too. And then it gets to the slightly more serious dimension here. The stakes of this issue are higher than you might imagine. As my colleague Derek Thompson wrote in The Atlantic recently, Americans are hanging out less and spending more time alone than at any point on record. This seems to have something to do with rising levels of depression and anxiety. We must do whatever we can to encourage casual socializing, including tearing down artificial barriers to low-stakes chit-chat. Go ahead and talk about the weather for America's sake. And indeed, if you there is an incredible article that Derek Thompson published. That we, it, it's a subject we've spoken about many, many times before. He interviews sociologist Gene Twenge, and there are these longitudinal studies that show that people are hanging out, uh, both men, women, black, white, old, young people are hanging out like significantly less than they ever have before. And it, it was declining before COVID, but now it's sort of at record lows, and especially among teenagers. But I don't know, talking about the weather, I feel like RJ lives in a place where the weather is nonstop good. Uh, Sarah, not so much. The weather where I am is always changing, which I, I happen to really like about it. But um, what about this? Do you have people that only talk to you about the weather? Do you have a do you do you share this bias against talking about the weather? Do you find yourself talking about it too much or punting to it when you're uh, insecure? I, I don't know. Talk to me. What what do you have to say? I mean, I come from people who've talked about the weather for generations because they've all been in farming. So mm-hmm. I never think of it as a boring subject. Like it was interesting to find all of the letters between you know, great aunts, great grandmothers, all that. And they inevitably talk about the weather, even in their letters to each other, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it Im- impacts their livelihoods. Right. But um, weather was always a huge topic in my household growing up for those reasons. You know, I mean, I think it's a little naive and I hate to say even weather is divisive, but you know, when weather leads to global warming, then people do have very strong opinions. So it's mm-hmm. fascinating to me that even weather is not safe anymore. Um, but I do think on some level, it's one of those like last safe territories we can go to, to connect with people. Um, having just moved here, we talk about the weather a lot, right? Because we'll meet people and they say, oh my gosh, well, how did you guys came from Houston? How did you, there's deep care. How did you make it through the, through the snow? Like my Uber driver the other day was like, oh, this is a hill you live on. What did you do? You know? So I think there's a lot of beauty and connectivity through that. But I mean, people have been talking about the weather since humans existed because we've needed it. So mm-hmm. I, I never think of it as necessarily a boring topic or, um, something you just go to. And also, don't we just all need things to just go to because we are pretty bad at connecting with people now um, and having these meaningful conversations. So, yeah, I mean. Rutger, what do you say as someone who's, I, I could see the sun is shining behind you and I can see, I think, what are palm trees. So, you know. Uh, yes. Once uh, again, RJ Heyman, the most hateable member of this mocking crew. Mocking as always, it's my, it's my claim to fame. Um People talk a lot about the weather here, a lot. Yeah. Like it's been um, when we woken up in the morning the past couple of days, it's been kind of high 40s, low 50s, and then going up to sort of mid 60s and breezy. And people are complaining about like how cold it is. Like oh. the heat, the heat is on in our office. People are wearing sweaters. 
Um, so there's nowhere you can go. And then it has been a pretty kind of wet winter so far. So people have been complaining about all the rain and everything. So that's true that no matter where you are, um, I find myself, I'm so affected by the weather. I'm so seasonally affected. Mm. Um, so that, you know, like today, uh, the weather is beautiful and I feel great. And on another day, if it's really um, cloudy and rainy, I maybe don't feel as as good. I mean, when we lived in New York City for a long time, finally, one January, February, we bought like a therapy lamp, like a light mm-hmm. lamp, because it was so dark and we had so few windows and we just like sat in front of that lamp for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour in the morning. And I don't know if it helped. It was supposed to help. Maybe it helped. But uh, yeah, I think when it comes to relationships talking with people, it does feel like there's always small talk. And then there's always the opportunity to share something, to, to, to test out like whether you can share something a little bit deeper. Totally. Like you can talk about the weather, right? but then are you willing to say something like, gosh, yeah, I'm so affected by the weather, or I get a little depressed uh, when it's rainy, or as happened actually this past Sunday, it was so nice to have a rainy day because I didn't feel the pressure to get outside and do something interesting. <laughs> we could just stay inside. Yeah. You know, but are you willing to like take that little bit of a risk to open up a little bit, be a little bit more vulnerable? Uh, and then see if it creates the room for for a relationship. And sometimes people take the bait, and sometimes they don't. Hmm. Um, when it comes to hanging out, I feel that because I think about having people over to kind of hang out, and I and I feel like I always need an excuse to do so. There needs mm-hmm. to be an event. There needs to be a game. There needs yeah. to be a party. There needs to be food. There, you know, who are the people in my life that I can just say, "Hey, what? Why don't you come over?" Yeah. Or who might just stop by? Yeah. Without any agenda, without, yeah. and, and it's a, it's a small group of people mm-hmm. in my life. And I feel like it's, it's a, I need more of those. Mm-hmm. I need more of people that I can just be in their presence and feel comfortable and not feel the weight of like needing to carry the conversation or feel scared that I'm going to share something that's a little bit too intimate totally. <laughs> you know? or yeah. that they're like, or that I think that they're going to think that I'm really boring or I have to yeah. prove something to them. Which like, I just have to say is like, I I know I'm a priest, so I don't need anybody to remind me of that. But as a priest's wife, as a clergy spouse, like everything you're saying to me feels very real in the world of like being the leader of these institutions where you you feel like you can only be yourself to a point and you feel like you kind of desperately long for casual friendships and they're really hard to find. They're so hard to find. I just want to like affirm that like that's a real struggle that, you know, that I see, I think all of you guys kind of share. Um, mm. So, yeah. We do. And I think it's it's more, I mean, I love where we live now, but it feels yeah. more pronounced than when we lived in Houston or oh, New York, which were big places where we could right. kind of be, have a little more anonymity. Sure. Um, now it feels like everywhere we go, someone knows who we are and you're yeah. always a little bit on guard to be like, I got to make sure I don't do anything or say <laughs> anything stupid right. that reflects badly on me or my church or like Jesus. Right. You know, um, no so, but, but I think it's, I think it's a real <laughs> thing. No pressure, no pressure at all. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's a real thing for people beyond just clergy and mm. and clergy spouses, right? Mm-hmm. The studies seem to suggest that I'm sure that those anxieties about who can I actually be a real person with, who do I have to prove something to, yeah. um, are, are a wider cultural phenomenon. So, But they do find that I think women in their 20s uh, comparatively are doing the most hanging out and un- nice. unmarried men in their 30s are comparatively doing the least amount of hanging yeah. out. That does not surprise me at all. And yet all the levels are down 
all across the board. Across the board. Yeah. And it, um, yeah. And I, I'm, I, I'm supposed to get lunch with um, a woman next week who I really love, who goes to our church. You know, I have all these women now who are dear friends of mine in their seventies, basically just cause like I miss my mom. Mm. And she texted me yesterday twice. Like first it was like, just, you know, just making sure we're still on for lunch. I was going to make a reservation. And then of course I didn't have the time to text her back. And then she texts like, like you really, we don't have to do this. Like, I know you have a really busy life. And then I'm like immediately got on and was like, this is in my calendar. You know, it's like, I, I know I need this. Right. Mm. Um, it's so important. Yeah, I think about it very much so in terms of like the the, the hanging out thing that I think is yeah. the glue. And again, we've we've sort of talked it. I'm, I'm self conscious that we've talked about it into sort of into the ground. Um, and and yes, I think of churches as a place where casual that can be a place of just casual chit chat after a service or something, coffee hour is the great, uh, you know, at least uh, in foregone eras. Um, and I don't know, RJ, if they were doing it in 1924, to be honest with you, but certainly I grew up watching folks chit chat for an hour after church and it wasn't necessarily fellowship. It wasn't, there was probably plenty of talk about the weather, but there was sort of just a touching base of like, how's it going? What's happening? And for people that wouldn't normally get to touch base, you touch base with the people in their seventies, you touch base with the, the, all the other sort of the, the folks that you don't necessarily run into. And I think that's something beautiful that is getting lost. And we, we feel the pressure in our own context to sort of have all these robust adult education opportunities, which I think are great, but it could be that the chit chat, because we've always been kind of frustrated that certain, certain demographics, especially sort of parents of young children don't come even when we offer childcare. And I think they need to hang out actually more than they need uh, to be taught. Uh, I'm still going to keep trying because I do think input is important. But when I read studies like this, I, 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 I get a sad about it or I, or I remind it, it's actually helpful to be reminded that the simple casual hanging out, which might look like superficial weather chit chat, right, is serving a deeper purpose. It's life giving. Mm-hmm. RJ, I, I just want to say I agree a hundred percent. I think I felt the pressure when I first got here. I did teach Sunday school, like adult rector's form, every single week, and then at some point, I think I just like ran out of steam a little bit, and we just yeah. started doing coffee hours, and we had the most amazing hospitality team, which provides this food, and now we have like you know, 130, 150 people hanging out for coffee hour and kids running around and it's packed and they just love it. And they don't, this, my sense is what they're saying. They don't want any program. They just want to spend um, time together. And then also you, you said about 1924, uh, our, our hospitality team, they did some research and apparently the really hot thing in 1924 was like, Jello, like yes. every, aspects. Everything was aspect? oh gosh. Oh my gosh, yeah. RJ, I had this with you. Do you and, remember? And I was like, I was like, we're gonna pass on that. So we will have women in worship, and there will not be aspects. So we're just we're gonna take the best of the past. But no, not if, all if of people the past. want to have some fun, go down the rabbit hole on Instagram to looking at various aspic recipe books. Oh my, that God. were but RJ, all the rage. I had tomato aspect with you at lunch when we Did went you? to lunch. Yeah, when we went to lunch at the country club, <gasps> oh, that gelatinous right. tomato thing was tomato. Aspect. How was it? Disgusting. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't but try it. But my mom it. loved it. So it I was like, I'll try it. belongs to a different generation <laughs> oh, for it sure. Does. It does. That's crazy. I, I personally right. do find, you know, I'm 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 probably this was a helpful, I guess, corrective to to me because I do tend to be a little judgmental about people that only ever talk want to talk about the weather. I I, I find it to be, especially among especially among men, frankly, uh, who 
or they want either want to talk about sports or the weather and i just i i feel like i've spent a lot of my life doing that in ways that i'm not really i'm personally i'm not a farmer so i'm i'm not that interested in either um so do I'd you much, eat produce? Sorry, yeah, exactly. I should be. I should be. I know I should be. I should care about these things. I just don't. And um, and yet I also noticed that my my moods fluctuate with the weather 100. percent And I've the, the I had the experience this past week of you know it's getting lighter outside, mm. and my oldest son is noticeably happier because he can shoot baskets outside till later or mm-hmm. he and I can throw the baseball or something like that and that really does matter I also though I gotta say uh, my wife experiences sunny days as pressure as the law like you've got to get out there and enjoy it yes and so anytime there's a there's a rainy day where games are canceled where social life is sort of curtailed she just those are her happiest days. And it's part mm. because it's it's kind of grace. She's like, yeah. oh, I don't have to feel guilty that it's I'm not doing day. something. I don't have to feel guilty. Yeah, it's a snow day. But um, I, uh, I mean, she, some people will say, I don't want to be cooped up. I need to get outside, get some endorphins going. She's just like, I don't have to f- – guilt. Guilt is such an ever-present factor that yeah. um, the, the weather can provide absolution. <laughs> You know, right. and I think that's real. So I guess this was helpful for me in terms of having some compassion for people that, that, that talking about the weather, it's not actually that superficial or not always superficial. But these are this is uh, very much everyday life. Uh, and this next piece is also about everyday life. And this is, you know, a few um, a couple months ago, we sort of checked in with boy world, I would say, talked mm. about boys. And uh, this is an interesting piece about girls, girl world. This was uh, Jonas Ellison sent this to us. Uh, this is written by Jessica Bennett in the New York Times. And this was sort of in conjunction with the release of the new Mean Girls movie, the sort of updated musical version of the Mean Girls movie that came out in February and is sort of already gone. It, it, I don't think it did not make much of a mark. But you don't have to have seen it to be familiar with what uh, she's talking about. She says this, as the trailer announcing this new version of Mean Girls put it, this isn't your mother's Mean Girls. And indeed, it isn't. Uh, Regina, the main sort of mean girl, no longer calls her friend dyslexic as a put down. Her followers are no longer derided as an army of skanks. Even the infamous burn book is now nicer. Fugly slut is now fugly cow. Dawn Schweitzer, once a quote-unquote fat virgin, is now a quote-unquote horny shrimp. (laughs) And and I didn't know what that means. She didn't know what it means either. This is meant to be reflective of the real world, of course, where ostensibly we no longer say these words, where we accept all body types, yeah, right, and have learned to be attentive to people's feelings, differences, and their trauma. But what the movie misses by simply stripping out the nastiest language is a chance to really update itself, to fully reflect on girl world in 2024. Because if the hallmarks of relational aggression are things like cutting friends out, spreading rumors, or exclusion, today's technology has created innumerable new ways to enact that adolescent torture. So what does this stealth meanness 2.0 actually look like? Jessica Bennett spent the last year shadowing eighth grade girls, by the way. So this is what she's, she knows of what she speaks. She says, the Lord's work. God bless no her. longer just whispers in the cafeteria or analog burn books, but also anonymous tea accounts on platforms like Instagram, like tabloid blind items, but for school gossip. 
And that societal shift to new, more inclusive language, it can be weaponized, a tactic familiar to anyone who's observed the rise of the term toxic. One teenager I spoke with last year in Colorado told me she'd been publicly called out by a friend on Snapchat for fat shaming, which is arguably worse at her school than actually being called fat. Passive aggression isn't just no offense, but before delivering a stinging insult, it's a soft block on social media, blocking, then unblocking on social media so that the person uh, doesn't understand what's happening and they can no longer view your stories. But without ever telling this to Josh person. all the time, Thank you, <laughs> people get dropped from group chats or are abandoned as new ones are started. The phones make everything more exclusive, said Poppy, 13. When people leave others on read for even a little, she's talking about having a text sit unanswered, it can hurt the other person's feelings, even if that's not the intention. A teenager in Michigan told me she unfollowed a classmate on Instagram because the girl had liked what she posted too quickly. It was, quote unquote, too thirsty, she said. Hearing about the unwritten rules of today's cafeteria dynamics made me almost pine for the simplicity of you can't sit with us. But there's just something a bit strange about updating a classic movie by pretending the world has just gotten nicer while not acknowledging the ways in which it's also gotten meaner. Now, I don't have, uh, I'm not raising girls. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm married to one, but it is, uh, this is frightening to me. Some of these uh, stealth tactics like the, uh, and I have heard of certainly the soft block. Hey, why can't I see this person's stories anymore? Um, mm. Why can't I, I think this person unfollowed me. Are they off social media now? But there's all this kind of coded language uh, that Mean Girls, the movie did pretty well. But again, what struck me the most is that human nature, the desire to exclude and to make oneself feel better at the expense of another person has not changed, but the norms by which we do this are always evolving, especially that thing about to be told you are a fat shamer is much worse than being called fat. Like that's the same thing in practice. It's just two different people are being targeted, right? I don't know. Uh, Sarah, I'm presuming you have a bit more familiarity with some of this stuff. What do you think? Well, first of all, y'all need to take them phones away from them girls. That's mm. this is this is like the number. This is the thing. Um, yeah, you know, kids are getting cell phones too early. And if you're hearing this and you're like, "Oh, my daughter's on the phone too much," I can't take it away. Yes, you can. You can take it away. Take it away. It's not good for them. It's not good for their hearts. It's not good for their brains. It's not good for relationships. It's not good for anything. You know, okay, well, I'm about to go on a rant. Don't even have anything to do with the girls. Giddy up. You know, I understand that a lot of people were raised in very Christian households where there were rules around what you could wear, especially if you were a girl. There were rules around, you know, dating. There were rules around if you were my age and you began to have phones, maybe you didn't have a phone, blah, 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 blah. This does not mean when you raise children, there don't need to be any rules at all. <laughs> and that is what I see a lot. You have to, I mean, part of, and we can talk about gentle parenting. This part of gentle parenting, Melina Smith and I talk about this all the time, is actually having some structure and keeping your kids safe. And that's your job. And so when I hear this stuff, I'm like, y'all got to do your job by these girls. And here's the thing with girls that y'all don't know. Girls are mean as hell to their parents, to their mamas. Okay. Let me tell you what Annie Condon did. Okay. She was trying to take her earring out this weekend. 
Annie, you're never allowed to listen to this, and I'm sorry I'm telling the story. And instead of getting my help, which she refused, I offered it twice, she pulled the ding-dang earring through the back of her ear. The whole thing, there's a bloody pulp on the back of her ear. And my husband, because she's screaming at me, I'm screaming at her. And my husband, saint of the Lord, says, get the hydrogen peroxide. I said, we don't have any. He said, get the get the um, tweezers. I said, I don't know where they are. So he goes to the garage and he gets his needle nose pliers and he pulls that baby's earring out the back of her ear. Girls are hard, okay? <laughs> and she yells at me the whole time. She's mad as hell at me about this whole situation. And here's the thing. Her dad's the one that put her earring in. I get it. Girls are scary. Girls are hard. But you have to be willing to absorb that anger sometimes and that fury that they're carrying when the hormones start to kick in and they're feeling social pressures. Cause if you don't absorb it, they gonna put it on somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge thing with us as parents and we're all busy and we've all got phones in our faces. And I understand the impulse not to absorb and to say, you know, go take that out elsewhere. But I think a lot of it is like we as parents have to absorb some of that stuff so that they're not then turning to these devices. I don't know. Did any of that make sense? Yeah, just... totally. It makes perfect sense. RJ, what it's... do you, I mean, you're, you've, you now have uh, some, some boys dating some girls that you uh, you're, you're, and your, your wife probably. Oh, yeah, forever, forever. Our two oldest boys have been <laughs> with the same girls for like at least five years. It's crazy. We talked about this well, Yeah, there. serial, serially monogamous, which is like, hey, well, great. I mean, Okay. <laughs> Good for you. Um, I mean, we've, I, I will, I just want to agree with a lot of what Sarah said, first of all, about being willing to absorb and deal with the negativity yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you have to let your kid just yell at you all the time. No. You know, like Marshall no. gets sent to his room and, and sure. he, he gets his timeouts and he needs to learn that there are natural consequences for uh, treating people badly or lying or whatever it might be. But I think just not being willing to be there and, I hate to use this word, but sort of to, as much as you can be a non-anxious presence that absorbs the negativity, Yes, you know, gives out like appropriate consequences. And I think for girls and boys, that may look a little bit different. Like you've talked about like hormonal craziness, you know, which leads to acting out. Sometimes that happens with boys. Usually what we found in our experience is that their hormonal craziness leads to withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. That they just, they withdraw, they're quiet, mm-hmm. they're silent. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what's going on in their life. They mm-hmm. give one word answers to everything. It totally freaks you out. Yeah. And then it's over in two years. Yeah. And they're back to being the lovely kids they were, but yeah. you can't overreact to it while it's happening or you're probably just going to push them farther away. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You have to show some, some grace. I do think, Sarah, when so much of teenagers' social life and interaction takes place in the digital space, even though it can so often be painful and unhelpful, whether it's worse to like allow your kids to participate and sort of be a part of things or whether it's or whether it's worse to just take it away and say no. Absolutely. It's scary. Well, and it reminds me of what, um, you know, there's that whole tiger mom thing that went around like 15 years ago, Yeah, yeah. you know, that, that mom who had her daughters always scheduled in yeah. every imaginable a- extracurricular thing would never let them hang out with their friends, would never let them go to sleepovers. And part of her was like, look, sleepovers are hard. Their girls are mean. Like there's yeah. no value in that. And I remember there's a lot of commentary and one of the, I think it was David Brooks or somebody said, um, yeah, sleepovers are really hard, but you're going to have to have those social skills to make it in the world, you know, right. like to know how to, to, to 
deal with conflict and to, you know, take social cues and, and, and to, to work things out and to reconcile and to know who you can trust and who you can't trust. And, and I feel maybe a little bit the same way, like is, is the sleepover of yesteryear is that the, the is that the phones of today mm. and like, how mm. do you balance the, the need to like, let your child fail and hurt in the world because the world is a scary place and then mm-hmm. be a place to process that versus just saying, no, this isn't worth it. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the answer is actually you have to move very slowly. Yeah. You know, and, and that, and that's the advice I've gotten from other parents is we move very slowly with things like technology and how do yeah. we navigate them? You know, the other thing this makes me think of, and we haven't talked about it on this podcast, although I've alluded to it, and I keep thinking about it in my talk with New York is this whole beauty culture that you guys are so unaware of with girls mm-hmm. at this age, um, where they're spending, you know, $60 on serums and they're going to Sephora and, you know, I mean, and, and what's fascinating to me is all of the articles are like, I mean, they might as well say who, who do these little bitches think they are? I mean, they're really, they're so mean. And I'm like, these are babies who have seen too much too soon, who don't have anyone there to guide them. That's what these are. This is our, this is our fault. Yeah. That's what this is. It's like resenting your kids for acting in the way that you raised them to act. Right. With expectations that you right. set up. It's insane. It's it like, it's insane. not their fault. And this blaming is your, them. This is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm. Yeah. Anyway, I've got a lot of no. Feelings. I I I'm very I'm curious about it too. I had I did it. We did a we did a sleepover this past weekend for my middle son, and he had two friends of his from fifth grade, and I overheard them uh, asking each other um, who is hot, right? Using that yeah. that term, and I yeah. asked him because there's a dance coming up that they're going to as Ooh. fifth graders, you know, and and Ooh. it's like. A, <laughs> It was, it's just, a, it's supposed do, to be just like a party. I do not want to go there again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I said, I said, and he, and I said, gosh, it, he said, he asked me, he said, dad, when did you guys start sort of doing crushes and, and boyfriend, girlfriend stuff? I said, you know, I think I remember rumblings in sixth grade, definitely seventh grade, eighth grade is it, kind of became a little bit more real. Fifth grade strikes me as, as, as young, especially considering his setting. I know it's not everyone's setting, but sure. um, he said, and both these boys looked at me and, and all three of them, they're like, it's the girls leading it, dad. Like they, they asked, I was like, the, I said that the girls ask the boys who is the hottest in the class. <laughs> and they're oh in fifth grade. Danger, in danger, grade. run away. And like oh my, my son's like, I want to play the trumpet, you know, like I watch news. Yes. And they're like much further, probably further away from puberty and all this stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, they all, all the girls ask the boys to this dance. They're all like pushing the, 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 all these sort of slightly more mature narratives on the boys. And I was like, well, son, do not answer that question. And yeah. <laughs> Yes. And, and whatever you do, you, this is why you don't have a phone because you're never going to answer that question in in yeah. in, in print. Um, right. Oh my God. Yeah. But I yeah. I did I did think I mean as the phone question is clearly hugely germane to all this, and yet I I think the deeper point is, is true, 
and that the hu- human sin is going to find a way to assert <laughs> sin itself. Sin will find a way. And well, the way that it they- happens among teenage girls, to be honest with you, is like a foreign country to me. And yeah. I, I didn't grow up with sisters, but I yeah. I've talked to my, my wife about it. And she grew up with a sister and went to all girls schools. And it's just so much more sophisticated and also it's, so yes. much crueler in a lot of yeah. ways. Like, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I always think about the sleepover that happened and, you know, now I went to public school in Mississippi as we need to remind the listener and um, that these there was this group of girls and they'd gotten really mad at this one girl and so when she went to sleep they urinated in her eye drops oh no I mean like y'all girls get it gets it gets scary out on these streets okay like so it's you gotta (laughs) I do I do want to say Dave you were talking about oh hotness yeah so just, I mean, you can edit this because it's such advice, but, um, you know, our friend Lindsay Clemens, she sends her boys to Camp Alpine. Mm-hmm. And one thing they teach the boys at Camp Alpine, which is a boys camp in Alabama, is we do not talk about girls in terms of temperature. Okay. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great <laughs> Isn't saying. Isn't it great? <laughs> I was, even, even when they're asking you to talk to them about even that Even when way. they're asking That just you, complicates yes. the narrative here a little it bit. Does. It's like these, these, it these does. young boys objectifying the girls. The boys had no idea. Like, they don't. Like, but I, I want to eat Doritos. They don't know. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Can I have some Capri so Sun, Dad? Um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, there you have it. Let's, let's move on from, from this to something much, much larger picture. This appeared on Mockingbird, written by uh, my friend and uh, fellow staff member here at Christ Church, Ben Self, called This Enchanted Universe. He writes this. He says, I was listening recently to the NPR program 1A, and I happened to hear two surprising expressions of faith. In the episode, the host asked listener-submitted questions to two seasoned NASA astronauts, Eileen Collins, the first woman to be a space shuttle pilot and commander, and Terry Virts, a former commander of the International Space Station. The question was, how have your experiences in space influenced your spiritual beliefs, if at all? Both astronauts said that their time in outer space had only strengthened their faith, but each for different reasons. Here's what Collins said. I remember these beautiful passes of earth. You look down at these cities and you say, God, there's New York City. There's 8 million people living in that one little dot. And you can see that the earth's atmosphere is very, very thin. Then you look in the other direction, you just see black. It's a little bit scary to realize we're on the surface of a ball revolving around the sun. And that thin layer of air is all that's keeping us alive. You can't help but to reflect. There's got to be a power greater than us that has made this tiny little oasis we're living on. This response, Ben writes, seems to me to be fairly natural. The specialness and preciousness of our world amidst the vast black deserts of space. It's a vantage point that would instill in most of us enormous gratitude and hence faith. But the other astronaut, Terry Virts had a slightly different response. He said this, said every once in a while you look out and you see this incredible universe that we have. There was this one moment on a spacewalk where I stopped for a second. I looked out and it was just overwhelming. It was like I was hearing from God. This is something that humans aren't meant to see. And then I had to get back to work because I had to put some grease on a bolt. I call it a juxtaposition of sublime and mundane. So I just came away with this awe and wonder of the universe, of my own body. 
I kind of don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's just such an amazing universe out there. Somebody pretty smart had to be involved. Ben responds. He says, while Colin's response was directed back at Earth, Vertz's response seemed to be directed out there at the grandeur and import of all creation. And it was his response that I found most moving. Why? Well, the idea of outer space has always scared me a bit. I've had conversations with non-believers who cited the universe's ungraspable immensity as evidence against the existence of a personal God. God, in the unlikely event there is one, can't possibly care what we're up to on this sodden planet in the middle of nowhere. He can't possibly care enough to attend to our puny little lives or prayers, let alone descend in the form of a man to live our life and die our death. Vert's response reframes the rest of the universe, though. Maybe it's not all just wasted space. Maybe God and God's grace are not only found here on Earth among us supposedly enlightened humans, but out there, too, far beyond what we could ever hope to observe or understand. Maybe there are other worlds and species that God loves as much as our own. What Verse describes is an experience of religious awe, a kind of burning bush encounter, but floating in outer space. As Dr. Keltner defines it, who we've spoken about, awe is the feeling of being the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. And that, to me, seems like the most interesting and encouraging faith response to all that lies beyond our planetary borders and beyond the span of our own species. I'll read a little bit more from him, but first I want to hear your response. What do you think? It is a very interesting fact that both of these astronauts had a strengthening, spaces had a strengthening effect on their faith, yet in sort of different directions, one by looking down at the earth and one by looking away from the earth. Do you think about outer space? Is this is this Dave t- talking about his own Roman Empire? What's um? Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was raised with Carl Sagan as like a religious figure in my household of origin. Mm-hmm. So billions I'm like sitting, and billions. Yeah, <laughs> looking at all the books I have from my dad's office. So somebody who was very fascinated by space. I mean, I do think it just invokes the sense of awe and wonder, right? That there had to be some intentionality behind us being here. Um, That's really incredible. But I love this idea that, because I think often it's kind of like how American Christians just think of American Christianity. But it's fascinating to me that sort of as as we think of the world as being like the only place where God exists. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful, it's like, well, no, like actually... God is, is in the universe. Like God has created all of this. And so, um, the vastness of this is mysterious to us, but also of God, like that's a really beautiful way. I feel like that's what they're saying. Like a really beautiful way to, to see the universe from a spiritual point. Mm. Um, especially someone who always hates when people are like, Oh, it's in the hands of the universe. So the universe sent me this, or then I told the universe, I'm like, universe doesn't give a shit about you. So, (laughs) I, 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 for me, it helps to reframe that a little bit. Mm. I think any time we can break free from the constant hamster wheel that's just churning in our mind all mm. the time, the hamster wheel of anxiety, regret, fear, whatever it is, and we actually like take the breath and look around, which is really hard to do yeah. and few and far, that, that it's hard not to be blown away by just you know, the beauty of, of what surrounds us and the, the, the complexity of human life and all this sort of stuff. I, I, I do think, um, 
we do take this for granted a little bit, right? It's all we know. But, you know, who knows if we're the only life in the universe? Mm. I'm inclined to think we're not, but we'll see. But if we are, I think scientists have said, like, there is more complexity in a single human cell than there is in the rest of the universe combined. Like, the rest of the universe is, is, is huge and amazing, but it, and it is interesting, but it's not that interesting. It's basically a bunch of gas and dust and energy, but it's nothing like another human being, you know, talking to another to another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have also like looked into this. They looked into um, I don't know the unlikeliness that something like human beings would ever arise out of a, a, a random universe, and it's it's impo- it's like impossible. The fact that we yeah. exist is is completely impossible. I love yeah, life that. is a crazy thing. I, I, I think about uh, I've talked about this that movie Soul, which you guys, Sarah, you still haven't seen still the haven't Pixar seen. movie Soul, yep. and it's about that. It's about just the infinite wonder of everyday life, which we so, which I so often miss because I'm so consumed with my to do list and justifying my own existence and uh, you know managing my own fear. Mm, <laughs> sure, but I look forward to those moments where I don't do that. And I'm kind of hoping that that's what heaven is like, right? You know, where I can actually just embrace uh, the incredible beauty of um, of life and existence. So that's encouraging, Dave. It, it, those are encouraging articles. And I we I heard the same thing from some people, you know, some very smart people uh, when I was in college as well. That their all of their studies um, of the physical world hadn't hadn't destroyed their faith. It actually had kind of made it because when you start to actually look into these things. Mm. Um, you see um, the beauty, the impossibility, the complexity, the wonder of it all. The one, yeah. I mean, we've t- we talked about awe as as an in- engine of faith, and I think it's it's there when you look at the sort of the incredible, you know, pictures beaming back from those telescopes and things like that. To me, it's it's it, I I I spend a lot of time, um, you know, in this, thinking about sci-fi and stuff like that. I like those television shows, and I enjoy those. Um, those books and there's always this interplay between space as like deadness and mm-hmm. desert and space as in the vast sort of beyond and you see this in the kind of a in star trek clearly you see it in um it represents possibility and opportunity not threat not just threat and i think there's there's something to that i i also this past fall i i finally read uh, c.s lewis's space trilogy um, in preparation for a talk. And one of the th- things that he's doing there is to kind of entertain if we really believe that the whole universe uh, is it's not just the world, but the all of creation is charged with the grandeur of God, as like Gerard Manley Hopkins says. Like, what might that look like? What might God's revelation look like in another planet? And these are fun thought experiments, if nothing else. I also want to offer my associate DJ Griffin preached this past Sunday, and he said something which I hadn't heard before, but I thought was really interesting. And it was, um, you know, this past Sunday was Jesus' baptism, and also kind of, uh, I think it was a little bit Noah's Ark as well. I can't remember yeah, what the weekend was. Yeah, it was Noah's Ark as well. Yeah. yeah. But he was saying, you know, when you look in Genesis, it talks about how in the very beginning the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Remember that? The waters. Yeah. Yes. And why was it the waters? And he said it was because the people who wrote the Bible had no concept of outer space, right? They'd never see, of course uh. not. They could look up at the sky, but they had no sense of the vacuum, the darkness, the, the the chaos of space. But they knew about the chaos and the fear of the waters. Mm. 
And so for them, outer space was the waters. Yeah. Um, and that's why the flood comes to sort of be the chaos that washes everything away. That's why we get baptized because we're sort of, we die in the waters of baptism or joined with Jesus and then raised to new life. But in that context, I think this outer space talk is really helpful because the truth is like, we've mastered the waters right now. We've mastered the sky. We've mastered the waters. We've mastered the natural world. We can do what we want. It's sort of not scary in that way anymore that the ocean, the sea was scary to the people who wrote the Bible. That's why there's no sea in heaven, right? Because there's no chaos. There's no fear, even though I really hope there's an ocean in heaven. And that's just figurative talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> talking about revelation right now. But to go back out to outer space, I mean, what did Al what's the tagline for alien? In space, no one can hear you scream. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Exactly. Yeah. Space is a fearful, awful place. Like when that guy goes on that spacewalk, the only thing that is saving him from like immediate, painful, explosive death is the suit that he's wearing. Yeah. We cannot live out there. And so that's actually, I mean, I hear what you're saying because, you know, Psalm 8, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament show with his handiwork, you know, Paul and Romans, the whole creation speaks to the glory of God. That is true. What's also true is that outer space is a terrifying, hostile environment. Remember that movie Gravity? That like really drove it home. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That really drove it home. Yeah. And I think to think it's about- It's like you and a like, a like souped up garden hose out there. <laughs> so to think about that in terms of the waters and baptism and death and that really, the, you know- the earth now is kind of the ark <laughs> that we are on, you know, um, saving us from the chaos and the waters of the universe. I'd be getting a little, little um, cosmic here. I like it. The, um, I, I'm going to read you just two more little sentences from, from Ben uh, before we move on. But he says, according to Christianity, God is not just a distant creator or judge, but the ever-present sustainer and redeemer of all that exists. The love that powers the whole bizarre cosmic enterprise every second of every day. The universe is alive, God's spirit pulsing through every atom. Of course, this does not mean that the universe is God or that, quote, unquote, everything happens for a reason, simply that God is imminent and sovereign. As the monks like to say, bidden or unbidden, God is present, even in the darkness corners of the deep. It's his universe. We're just living in it. Uh, there's, that's a sense of proper awe, I think, that um, is, is a, a faithful response to... Um, to this and 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 I, I perhaps you know we we're also just publishing this issue on mystery and to me as you've said like the stars represent mystery in a way that the sea doesn't to, or at least not to me um not anymore and so used to. striving after the ineffable after the kind of uh the metaphysical or the the cosmic is is always bound up in sort of sci-fi for me i wonder if that's you know, it's, uh, these people who have good gobs of money who run things like Amazon and Tesla and now Twitter, um, who are trying to go up there, and there's such blowback, right, for them funding these space ventures. And I just wonder if part of us is just like, God, just leave it alone. Let us have some mystery. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just wonder if there's this sense of like, can we can we just let that be? Well, I, I don't know. The Keltner actually, Dr. Keltner talks about how the relationship between what he would call like wealth and awe 
And you would mm-hmm. think that wealth would remove obstacles to experiencing life's wonders, but it does the opposite. Because uh, he would say, privilege brings a heightened sense of self-agency, that I'm in charge of everything. I'm the master of everything. Mm-hmm. It, it brings a sense of a lack of hardship and a lack of mystery rather yeah. than the opposite, which, as we know, is kind of, a, of a, actually more down-to-earth smallness and God's largeness or the so so it is so he's saying what he's saying it is harder to find all the wealthier you are because you've so absorbed this fiction that you're you are in charge of everything and yeah material that you can create all for yourself yeah essentially yeah but I also feel like people with resources like some people I know they're 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 chasing awe yeah Right, they want to get to the top of Everest, or they want to learn how to fly, or they want to do a, a solo sailing trip across the Atlantic. And I, I've never, I've never done that, but I've got to imagine if you were ever in a sailboat in the middle of an ocean in a storm, you know, oh. you you would not feel quite the same level of mastery, and you might have more, uh, you know, you feel very small. You feel small and scared. Yeah, I mean, guess. I think what. what the old form of awe is terror in the face of the largeness. Right. The, the form of awe we're talking about here is more gratitude in the face of uh, immensity. I mean, now we're just talking, but I just, it makes me wonder about terror and fear of God and awe of God in the Bible mm-hmm. and how when we have enough resources to sort of chase awe, which is sort of manufactured awe on some level. Right, like how um, how much harder it is to be awed by God, and I say that as someone who's resources, right? Like I just that's an interesting thing to All me. Those, those billionaires at the bottom of the ocean and that like looking for the Titanic. <laughs> I just I just saw yes. a meme recently that said that? I still don't I still don't understand why all those people went down in that submarine. <laughs> I mean, rip them. You know what I mean? R.I.P. But geez, I'm P. Well, that was what I thought that was some next? fresh territory was... for us to talk <laughs> about, but let's shrink it back down to human scale. Yes. And uh, Michael J. Fox. Michael mm. J. Fox. Uh, this is from Jordan Griesbeck. It appeared on our website. Jordan is speaking in New York. He's just fabulous. I'm so excited to have him up there. And he wrote a review of the new documentary about Michael J. Fox called Still. And this is what he wrote. He said, the conceit at the center of Still is that before Parkinson's, you know, Michael J. Fox is probably the most famous, you know, uh, I guess Parkinson's diagnosis. Fox was never still in body or soul, but since Parkinson's, He is still in soul, even if his body shakes. Fox on camera recounts hiding his diagnosis from the world for seven years. He was diagnosed when he was 29. The hiding, however, began even before Parkinson's. Fox says, actors don't become actors because they are brimming with self-confidence. An actor's (laughs) burning ambition is to spend as much time as possible pretending to be someone else. He severe alcoholic, apparently. And so the hiding was very much, you know, part of that uh, particular malady. Eventually, the burden of hiding weighed him down until he crashed. After a particularly wild night, Fox wakes up hungover and his wife asks him if this is the life he wants. His answer is no. And so his journey towards honesty begins. Fox isn't rosy about the road to healing. He says his first year of not drinking was torture. And while it was relieving to finally tell the world about his Parkinson's, it was also terrifying to walk on set again for the first time, anticipating the looks and the stares. Finishing the documentary, however, the real star might be his wife, Tracy Pollan. Uh, 
Once an actress herself, she has given up almost everything for Fox. She gave up her acting career to stay home with the kids so Michael could travel the world and remain a star. She stayed with him through his alcoholism. She drives him to his doctor's appointment. She makes fun of him. The filmmaker asks Fox to describe her in one word, and he says, clarity. Psalm 36.9 says, in your light we see light, and in the light of her love, Michael can see and accept himself. In one of the opening scenes, Fox leaves his Manhattan apartment and barely makes it out the door before falling down on the sidewalk. A pedestrian who would have, in another life, asked Michael for his autograph instead stops to ask if he's okay. Once invincible, his life is now that of the monk who famously said, when asked what they do in the monastery, we all fall down and we get up. We fall down Mm. and we get up. This is a reminder of the common refrain of disability literature. That the proper distinction between human beings is not disabled and able-bodied, but instead disabled and temporarily able-bodied. All of our bodies will break down at some point. For some, it simply starts sooner. All of this makes still a story for Ash Wednesday and for the reality check that is Lent. To be still and stop chasing whatever it is we chase. To be still and know that God is God. And to know that the crucified God, like Tracy with Michael, loves us still in spite of addiction, hiding, falling, and death. What a beautiful piece of writing that is. I had a conversation yesterday with my middle child who asked me what my favorite movies are. And, um, you know, my default answer is always the fantastic Mr. Fox, of course. But the, um, the, I, I have to put Back to the Future in there at this point because I've, just, I've mm. watched it so many times with the boys and I think it's basically a perfect movie. So yeah. It's funny that Michael J. Fox, who was really, he was really a television star and then was in mm. that series. That's going to outlast, you know, my kids don't, when Arnold Schwarzenegger comes on the TV during Super Bowl ads, they have no idea who he is. Well, you need to make them watch Twins, <laughs> that but was okay. They all, okay, like a good twins. neighbor. Oh, that was, that was funny, but they all know. <laughs> twins is an excellent movie. They, trust me, Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly will yeah. outlive anything that Schwarzenegger did. And I listen, I yeah. love Terminator and Terminator 2, but Michael J. Fox has this sort of um, iconic power and then to sort of hear the whole story and especially you know ash wednesday this year sarah you pointed it out in an article that ash wednesday fell on valentine's day for the you know Mm -hmm. it happens every blue moon but um to have the reminder of one's mortality and the sort of breakdown of the body combined with the romantic love that's sacrificial and kind of caring, it, it, it is cruciform. It is cruciform. There's no other way to talk about it. And it both enhance the other in a beautiful way. And, I, and I, that's why I chose to talk about this documentary. So even if you haven't seen it, and it, by the way, it's wonderful. It's excellent. Yeah. RJ, what are you thinking? Yeah, I just... It's it's the one of the most powerful examples I've ever seen of what we call the theology of the cross, mm. that God works in and through suffering, you know, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, as it says in the serenity prayer, because my, it's very clear, Michael J. Fox, I think pretty much says it, if it weren't for his illness, he would probably be dead, or he'd be divorced, yeah. or he'd be an alcoholic. And so like the thing that he you know, which would seem to be the worst thing that ever happened to him actually is the best thing that ever happened to him because he's got his children and he's got his wife and they love him and they're with him and he would have lost all of that. You know, I mean, I saw something about Shaquille O'Neal this week 
who apparently is amassing a real estate empire. But I guess he did an interview recently. He was talking to Travis Kelsey. No, no, Travis Kelsey's brother who played for the Eagles. And he said, don't make the mistakes I've made because I sit in, I sit in a 100,000 square foot mansion all by myself. Oh. And, I, and I've lost everything and I have nobody and it's completely my fault. Oh. Hmm. So there you go. There's the guy, Shaquille O'Neal, who has his health, who has everything, who has the money, who has the house, who has the real estate, and he has nothing. Yeah. And Michael J. Fox, who has Parkinson's and who has everything. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the theology of the cross, about the thing you wish hadn't happened actually being the thing that saves your life. Yeah. Mm. That's so powerful. And so I, I, this, the so reading powerful. at the lectionary this past weekend was Jesus, you know, hearing you are my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased in his baptism. And then immediately shot like a bullet to the wilderness, to the, <laughs> to, by the spirit of God, not by the devil. He is, he is, it's, it's somehow his, ex, yeah. the experience of the wilderness is not the experience of godlessness, you know, um, yeah. and that God is close. Yeah. And that, that's the, that's the whole paradigm for Christ's ministry, I think. And that like, he's not, it's not a way around suffering, but right there in the middle of it. And, right and it, it sounds like the, I mean, uh, Fox is, is, is putting words to this because no one would say, why, why on earth would you ever wish Parkinson's on someone, especially at 29? That's crazy. Sarah, yeah. What else do you think? I, well, I do want to say this. So uh, this Christmas, Annie and I were doing after Christmas sales. And this is how every this is how every child, you know, knows back to the future. There was a, a puffy red vest I tried on and Annie goes, you look so cute. And I said, don't I look a little bit like Marty McFly? And she goes, yeah, you can't buy that. <laughs> like immediately my nine year old was like, yeah, we I know exactly what you mean. Um, You know, it makes me think we never get the resurrection we want, but we get the resurrection we need. Mm. And it makes me think a lot actually about, and I talked about this um, a little bit at RJ's church. I preached about it at Stu Shelby's church, um, the CBS Sunday morning bit with Anderson Cooper, where he talks about his own grief and, you know, cause he's, he's lost all these people and, and his family is the only one left. And he says, you know, as a journalist, I've spent years documenting the grief of other people, but I just keep running from my own and I haven't gotten very far. Hmm. And I just think it's such a reminder that there's a blessing in a disease like Michael J. Fox has on some level because he did try to hide it and he did try to run from it, but it is unavoidable to have Parkinson's, right? And sometimes it is an odd blessing. And I, you know, obviously say this as someone who's had this in their lives where, you know, you don't get a choice, you know, the bottom just drops out. You can't hide your vodka in the freezer and a turkey, you know what I mean? Like it just, it all becomes known and you have to find your way through it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, we've suffered so much and I, I wouldn't take back any of it. I a hundred percent understand what he's saying here, you know, and the, the beauty of God and God's creation and, and, you know, hell, we'll just throw the universe in there <laughs> is we actually, we actually don't get that choice. We don't get to take it back. We just have to live through it. So. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think that this is it, to the extent that Lent is starting to resonate more widely in the, 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 the American church or the church globally. I think it's, it's this great permission to once a year to um, actually confront and to acknowledge these things for the gifts that they are, even if we would never have asked for them, that 
the God who's revealed in the cross is the only God that can really sort of stand up to the reality of, of life in, in, in such a it's such a uh, awe-filled but also completely tragedy-filled cosmos. The last thing we were it's when I was with the women at the sanctuary. So Stacy Chavision and I did this basically just small group time with them for an hour where we just talked and you know the story of sanctification got brought up and I love nothing than to you know freak out a group of women who don't know anything about Catholicism. So we talked about the saints and you know how I come from a tradition that you know, believes the saints and, and venerates the saints to a certain extent. And, you know, how the thing we get wrong is that we always look at the saints and think, well, I, I wish I had the, you know, I'm praying for the faith of, of Saint whoever, but really it's that we're praying for suffering on some level when we think about the saints. And, you know, I think in Lent, I mean, Josh was saying on Sunday, you know, this is not a self-improvement project that you're entering into. Like this is, real suffering that we're witnessing in the person of Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like so lucky that it feels like at every point in my life, I'm not alone in my suffering. And maybe that feeling is a little bit louder this time of year. Mm-hmm. RJ, any, any closing benediction for us for, for Lent, Ash Wednesday? You've had to preach about this a lot. Anything you feel you want to just share as we close? It doesn't have to be Michael J. Fox related. No, I, for Ash Wednesday, I just told people, I remind them that they're going to die and that we spend a lot of time avoiding that, denying that, pushing it away. Um, yeah. But it's it's true and it's actually not as terrible as we think because our death is a reminder that we're not that important. Uh, we're we're, we're kind of small, but there's relief in that. Uh, Sarah, I told your story about moms who don't swim with their children. You know, you're going to die, get oh, in the yeah. pool. Yeah. That, got a, that, that, got a good, that got a good laugh. Um, and that... Because of the death of Jesus, it's not the end of the story. And so if we can carry that with us, carry the reality of our death with us, um, it might actually enable us to live a little bit more fully um, and to say all those things to the people we love um, that we need to say, knowing that at any point, you know, Jesus might come back to take us home. And I really hope he does Mm -hmm. soon. Uh, But but in the meantime, um, yeah, we just remember we're mortal ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And there's actually some freedom and some joy in that. And we do not forget that Michael J. Fox also starred in Teen Wolf, which is an <laughs> which incredible is also amazing. movie. Which, also an, yes, it is. A wonderful so, movie. So much on hair. On that note, I yes. feel affirmed by that movie if people have ever gone swimming with me. You should, honey, because um, I have seen you in yes, a swimsuit. exactly. There Ooh, you go. Lord. So on that note... Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks blessed Lent bye thank you for listening remember you can find us on the web at www.embird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com audio production for the Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.